Welcome to the Thriving Wellness Podcast, where we encourage and empower everyone to live their lives up to their true potential and share valuable conversations that are translated into action steps for the lifestyle that makes you thrive. Here are your hosts, Ryan and AJ. Hey folks, welcome back to the Thriving Wellness Podcast. This is Ryan Kennedy. And I must say there's so much talk these days about diet and nutrition. I mean, literally thousands of books have been written about which diets are best and why. But one aspect to nutrition that's been gaining more and more attention is not just what to eat, but rather when to eat and the benefits of not eating anything at all for extended periods of time. I'm referring to fasting. You see, until relatively recently, humans didn't have refrigeration or supermarkets. So oftentimes people would have to go long periods of time uh, between eating while they tried to find food. So fasting has been done by humans since the dawn of existence. And it's been getting a lot of media attention within the last several years because of all the benefits associated with it. So this modern notion of eating three to four or five meals a day is not exactly natural for humans. I'm super excited to have with me Sim Lance, author of the book, Metabolic Autophagy, and we're going to be taking a deep dive into the topic of fasting today. Sim is an author, speaker, content creator, and high-performance coach from Estonia. He's been writing articles and making videos about optimizing health, body composition, and really all things wellness. He's written several books about fasting, the ketogenic diet, and does international speaking. So Sim, welcome to the show, man. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me on the show. So I'd love to start by diving into your backstory. What got you so interested in health from such an early age? Yeah, that's a good question. And usually, as I've heard from other people, then they get into health and wellness because they get some sort of a disease or they're like severely overweight. But that's not really the case for me. I've never had any like serious medical condition and I come from a pretty healthy background. But the reason I got interested in this had to do with like just primarily using, uh, let's say this, you know, health and biohacking as a way of disease prevention. So I think that's the ultimate medicine there is and making sure that you don't get sick in the first place. So I've always kind of uh, tried to improve myself as a, as a human being. And since, you know, since uh, high school, I started lifting weights. So uh, with that, you're just kind of wanting to learn more about nutrition, how to optimize uh, you know, different macronutrients uh, and so on. So I've just went into the rabbit hole of becoming very curious about, uh, you know, tr- physical training and uh, nutrition and then kind of stumbling, stumbling upon other forms of human adaptation with like uh, cold thermogenesis, fasting, heat saunas and, and so on. So yeah, I've just made it almost like a, a profession of mine to be uh, like a fully optimized human being who is at the same time learning about these things and uh, sharing this kind of content uh, with other people so that they can learn it, learn it as well. I love it, man. I'm kind of in a similar boat because yeah, I haven't had any serious health challenges myself, but like you mentioned, it's all about prevention. That's really the key because once you get sick, it's a heck of a lot harder to reverse an illness than it is to prevent it in the first place by good lifestyle practices. and as you touched on as well, it's all about quality of life and performance. So even if you're not sick, it's, you want to feel good, perform well, have good energy. So all that stuff is just so important. And let's just dive right into fasting. Can you go into some of the basic information around fasting and, and touch on some of the benefits? Yeah, for sure. Like, um, like you kind of briefly 
uh, alluded to earlier, you know, fasting itself is very uncommon in the modern world. Uh, whereas at the same time, it was the norm in the past when humans were hunter gatherers and uh, they would occasionally go through periods of long fasts and not eating anything, uh, which is the kind of opposite of uh, the modern environment. And a lot of people, because of that, they tend to ha may have like this negative connotation about fasting and thinking that it's starvation or it's going to harm them. But there is a lot of actually a lot of uh, research showing that, you know, periods of fasting coupled with uh, adequate nutrition, they, they can be actually very beneficial for the body and especially like promote uh, a lot of longevity uh, pathways as well as just improve general metabolic health. So uh, research has shown that fasting is very effective for especially things really like diseases related to uh, insulin and uh, blood sugar regulation. So fasting is very good for uh, diabetics. It's, it's, it's also good for just losing fat with it. And uh, yeah, like even, like I mentioned, some, some longevity benefits. So uh, yeah, I believe, well, at least like the research is showing that some, some form of fasting is one of, the, one of the easiest and surest ways of just, you know, making sure that you stay healthier and uh, also... Uh, make sure that you feel awesome at the same time. Yeah, I completely agree. And I always tell people it's not exactly the easiest, but it is the simplest. You know, it's mm. by default. <laughs> all you do is not eat anything. It saves you a ton of time. It saves you money. And there's all these whole slew of benefits associated with it. And so what are some of the health implications of grazing on food throughout the day? You know, people who eat all day long and are fed this kind of incorrect information by the mass media that, hey, you should be eating small meals frequently and eat six or seven times a day. Right. What are some of the well, downsides to that? Yeah, I would say it's just a bit misleading and it uh, may seem uh, it may seem somewhat obligatory to be having to eat all the time that you should actually want to avoid hunger and you should never, never skip a meal, etc. Those things are just taken they're definitely like uh there's not going to be any significant benefit to eating more frequently for most people unless they have like some serious medical condition or some uh, athletic goals but most people they would actually benefit from a slightly uh, less frequent eating frequency because imagine if you're uh, let's say eating all the time then you're never going to allow your body to tap into its own stored body fat and you will never also um, start cleaning out the cells if you're constantly eating because you are like literally putting in more trash <laughs> into the trash can and not taking it out so that's what fasting does in a nutshell like during the fasted period you're uh, running low on the food that you ate from your last meal and in so doing the body starts to scavenge and uh, recycle some of its old uh, worn, worn out uh, compartments and uh, cells. So uh, during the fasting period, you activate this process called autophagy, which literally is like taken out the trash. And uh, that's where most of the magic also comes from, like the longevity benefits. They're uh, very much tied to the activity of autophagy. So with a high eating frequency of like, imagine three to four times a day with like snacks, then you're never really tapping into autophagy because you're keeping your body in a fit state and being in a fit state means that you're not really repairing yourself. So, from the perspective of from the per, from the perspective of survival, your body already also only prioritizes one thing at a time. It will either digest the food that it ate, it will either you know build new cells, or it will then recycle those cells. So it can't do all of them at once. And if you're eating very frequently without giving your digestion a break, 
then you're rarely tapping into uh, the fast state where uh, your body is actually healing itself and uh, re repairing itself. So typically, let's kind of break down some of the different types of fasting. So to kind of touch on some of these benefits where you're getting this autophagy, this kind of cellular cleanup and tapping into some of your stored body fat as a way to, you know, burn body fat effectively. What kind of time span are we talking about here? Because there's obviously intermittent fasting that ranges with different, you know, time restricted eating windows and there's multi multiple day fasting. And so what is really the kind of minimum effective dose that people can do? to really reap a lot of these benefits. Yeah, I think um, the actual, let's say, time frame for the fast varies a lot between people and uh, depends on what's their goals. So um, let's say a sedentary person who doesn't train a lot and uh, they may suffer from like a little bit of excess weight, then for them, they can safely fast for longer and eat less often because their body is under less physical stress and uh, they, would, they would actually benefit from lo longer fasting as to kind of lose the weight versus someone who is very physically active, they're already metabolically healthy, they're uh, exercising, they're sleeping properly, etc. Then for them, they, first of all, they don't need to fast for that long to you know, maintain their health. And at the same time, they wouldn't be able to sustain their physical performance with uh, longer fasts either. So it depends a lot on like the amount of physical activity you do, what's your health status, what are your biomarkers, and what's your goals in that particular situation. Because e even though, let's say, a healthy person, they don't need to fast that long, they will still benefit from occasionally going for like a longer fast, uh, such as like a 24-hour fast or a 48-hour fast. So uh, yeah, it's the kind of frequency and the length of the fast are very context dependent. But in general, I think uh, for the for every person, uh, every human, <laughs> there's there's no reason to be eating any more frequently than like once or twice a day uh, or at, like in some rare situations, you know, three times would be the maximum. And uh, yeah, like two times is something that I believe uh, most people can definitely pull off and they will uh, greatly see some benefits. So there are some studies showing that just consuming your food within an eight-hour time frame and fasting for 16 hours of the day, that has these unique metabolic benefits beyond just weight loss. It's, going to, it's also going to coincide a lot with the, uh, the circadian rhythms of the environment and it, keeps the, it can improve the, the person's sleep quality and uh, these other epigenetic signaling factors. So, so yeah, like in general, most people, they... The minimum, bare minimum, I think everyone should stick to is like a 16 and 8 type of intermittent fasting schedule where they're fasting for 16 to 16 hours and eating their food within 8 hours. But uh, for someone who is trying to really optimize their fasting and nutrition, then they can even go beyond that, like uh, eat, maybe eat within 4 hours and fast for 20 hours or eat only like once a day and uh, then, then implement like these longer extended fasts a few times a year that goes beyond just 24 hours. Gotcha. And in terms of your eating window, so let's say for the you know standard person, they decide, okay, I want to try this 16-8 intermittent fasting. Does it make a big difference from your, from your findings, whether they have that eight-hour eating window towards the first part of the day, like let's say uh, you know, 10 a.m. To, to 6 p.m. type midday, or if they have eating later into the evening? Like I know a lot of people who will do intermittent fasting will completely skip breakfast. They'll have their first meal sometime around, let's say, 1 or 2 p.m., and then they'll have a later dinner 
at 8 or 9 or even 10 p.m. Have you found that to be problematic if they're pushing their eating window uh, later into the day and eating you know, sooner before bed? Uh, there is some uh, research to show that earlier time-restricted feeding uh, is more beneficial than eating, let's say, throughout the day. So there's some studies that show that if you eat from 10, 10 or if you eat from 8 a.m. to uh, to 4 p.m., then that's giving you like this uh, different kind of metabolic response than eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But at the same time, there's also some studies that compare this type of early time restricted eating to later time restricted eating where you're eating either within the first half of the day or the second half of the day, and there is no difference as long as, as long as the food is still confined to a certain time frame. So in general, I think there is not, there's no real significant difference between skipping breakfast versus skipping dinner as long as you skip one of the meals in a sense that uh, the, 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 the kind of determining factor comes from the compression of the time, time frame where you eat your food and uh, not, not that much of the particular time of the day when you're eating. Uh, but with that being said, I think that finishing your last meal at least like four to five hours before bed is uh, still better than eating Im- immediately before going to bed because you still want to have like some time for uh, digestion before you go to sleep because like uh, during sleep a lot of the other repair processes also take place and if you have like a bunch of food sitting in your stomach uh, at that time then you're just going to like decrease the sleep quality a little bit and uh, you may inhibit some of the repair processes as well so in general i, I myself would suggest that uh, skipping the f- or like waiting at least a few hours after waking up is a good idea and waiting and, and stopping to eat at least a few hours before bed is also a good idea. So uh, within like the mid, mid, mid uh, early afternoon until mid early dinner type of schedule is somewhat, somewhat where most people should uh, consume their calories. Yeah, I found the same to be true. And I'm sure it, it does vary based on the individual, but I found for the majority of people I work with, eating an early dinner is really the key. Having that long stretch between your last meal and going to bed is really beneficial for your sleep quality and enabling you to really tap into that stored body fat overnight while you're sleeping. So for me personally, I typically do eat an early dinner and find that I perform and feel best when I eat within a few hours after waking rather than skipping breakfast all the way until the middle of the day. Now, in terms of skipping breakfast and having your first meal at 1 or 2 p.m., do you find that it causes any potential disruptions in your circadian rhythm? Because I know food is a circadian cue and having breakfast, you know, within an hour or two after waking does kind of help our biological clock stay on point. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And I've heard some other people uh, point it out as well. Uh, I would say that I, I do agree that food is a circadian signaler. signaler and uh, if you were to like fast throughout the day then in theory you're suppressing your food circadian rhythm and activating it only later in the day when you break the fast Uh, but with that being said the most circadian signaling is transmitted through the eyes so light from the sun and other light sources is a much more powerful stimulator of the circadian rhythms and uh, you know you can also you can also uh, activate let's say the liver's circadian rhythm and you can activate your digestion without actually breaking the fast and without consuming like a significant source of calories. For instance, salted water also stimulates the liver and it stimulates the digestion tract. So uh, that can already kind of kickstart the circadian rhythm of the liver and digestion 
without necessarily breaking the fast. And the same applies to like coffee and teas. They're zero calories virtually, but they do um, put you into a, you know, they do activate the liver and wake it up in a sense. So you're not staying in a hibernated state of digestion, even though you're uh, fasting throughout the like, earlier parts of the day. That makes total sense. And I've been telling people for years, one of the most important things to do as soon as you wake up is go outside and bask in that morning sun because that is a huge regulator for our circadian rhythm and a, a massive component to uh, my morning routine. It's just getting outside and getting some natural rays. And in terms, so you touched br briefly on beverages. So when you are fasting then, a lot of people, there's, there's much debate in terms of if you can have coffee, if you can have tea, what kind of electrolytes you'd add to your water and how this would affect the benefits of fasting, whether it would enhance them or, or maybe even bring them down. So can you touch a little bit more on that? Uh, yeah, for sure. Like uh, during the fasting period, then um, you can get away with things like uh, coffee and teas because they're zero calories. And at the same time, they do stimulate some of the uh, metabolic processes that occur during the fasting period, uh, such as one of, the, one of the ones I already mentioned, autophagy. Coffee is a potent stimulator of autophagy and green tea is, as well. So uh, I believe that they can definitely be used strategically uh, in the fasting period to, uh, first of all, they can also, they're useful for like suppressing appetite mm -hmm. and giving yourself more energy. And at the same time, they do promote the autophagy process. So in a way, you can think of coffee like speeding up the, the fasting period in a sense that you can, if you drink coffee, then you can probably get into autophagy a little bit faster than if you were to not drink it at all. So uh, yeah, it's, it's somewhat useful of a hack in a sense that you can uh, reap the benefits of fasting a lot quicker. And uh, I'd, I, with the caveat that you should make sure that the coffee is not going to become like, um, it's not going to disrupt your sleep and it's also not going to dehydrate you or it's not going to overstimulate your adrenals. So most people who, uh, who are doing fasting, then um, they may develop the tendency of becoming too addicted to caffeine and drinking too much coffee. So I would suggest that sticking to a maximum of like one to three cups of coffee at a maximum is, uh, is the kind of the safe zone. And definitely like you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be going for five cups or something and you, 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 should, you shouldn't uh, drink coffee and other caffeinated beverages after the afternoon because uh, the caffeine is going to stay in your system for longer which is then going to disrupt your sleep and again like you get a you get a bad night's sleep you wake up groggy in the next day and then you need more caffeine <laughs> to keep that vicious cycle going because you didn't get enough sleep so the actual solution would be to try, try to um, minimize the amount of caffeine you're consuming and only use it as a, like a strategic tool and a performance enhancing uh, supplement almost. Yeah, I think a lot of people fall into that trap and become really uh, dependent on caffeine. I know I take cycles off of coffee to kind of reset my yeah. sensitivity to it because it is very easy to start you know, going down that rabbit hole and starting to drink too much coffee, especially when you're fasting, because like you mentioned, it's excellent for suppressing your appetite. So you get a boost in energy and you're not really hungry. And so it does work pretty well with this intermittent fasting, but you do need to be mindful of that because caffeine can be a pretty harsh stimulant to the central nervous system and to the adrenal glands. And so I always tell people too, you know, if you have a cup, maybe have some tea after that, which is going to be much lower in caffeine, but still provide a lot of those same benefits. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like, like I mentioned, you know, 
is a good idea to kind of cycle of caffeine because you're going to build up your tolerance. And if you were to do this habitually and not overdose it, then you can get away with less caffeine as well. <laughs> and you can, feel the, you can feel the bigger effect from uh, fewer cups of coffee. That's exactly right. Now, in, in terms of uh, common mistakes people make when fasting, can you go touch on a couple of those? Um, yeah, I will like probably a very common mistake is, you know, just overdosing on caffeine. But at the same time, some people may also use like these other um, supplements with artificial uh, sweeteners and other compounds that technically do inhibit some of the fasting process. Like BCAs are a good example. The, the branched chain amino acids, they, they're one of the most anti-autophagic compounds because the amino acids are uh, literally going to take you out of the fasted state. And uh, if you're taking BCAs during a fasting period, then you may just not get a lot of the benefits that you hope, you, <laughs> that you hope you're getting. And yeah, like it's just maybe selling some uh, false ideas about that you need to uh, feed your muscles with the amino acids. Whereas in reality, it's actually a good idea to you know, occasionally be catabolic and actually fast. That's where the, that's where the magic happens. Um, then I would also say that uh, kind of becoming too focused on the fasting rather than other aspects of health is another mistake. Like when people do fasting, then they should still, you know, make sure that they're, you know, exercising regularly, they're getting enough sleep, enough sunlight, and that their diet is also on point in the sense that you can't, you, you, you can, in some aspects, outfast the bad diet and you can, you know, get away with some junk food even, but it's not still optimal. And uh, you would be better off by making sure that your diet is on point and also like making sure that uh, fasting is not going to inhibit your progression at like uh, exercise. So you still want to progress in your workouts and they get stronger and, uh, and whatever other, you know, performance goals you have. But yeah, in general, if fasting becomes like, uh, if fasting starts to interfere with your progress, then you just have to either take a little break from fasting or just adjust uh, your approach in a sense. Got it. That makes total sense. Yeah. So people do kind of relic fasting as this cure all almost a fountain of youth. And yeah. while there are a lot of benefits, obviously you're touching on it, you know, you can't expect one lifestyle habit or practice to completely negate a bunch of bad habits. You know, it's, it's all about the whole picture and taking a holistic view and dialing in all of these factors, uh, not trying to eat a bunch of junk food just because you're intermittent fasting. It, yeah. it really doesn't work like that. Now back to some of the substance some of the different foods during a fast, a lot of people will put, uh, let, let's say some healthy fats in their coffee or tea, some, some MCT oil or some uh, grass fed butter and mm -hmm. claim that even though it's not a caloric, you're still receiving majority of benefits of fasting because it won't cause any spike in your blood sugar. So there's still, you know, not having any glycemic response. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, uh, it is true that uh, fat, doesn't really raise your blood sugar and uh, it only raises insulin over a very slow and long period. So technically, on paper, you are staying in a fasted physiological state. Uh, but at the same time, the uh, nutrient signaling is still affected and shifted more towards being in a fed state because you can't really measure uh, the background nutrient signaling that is happening in your body, such as between between um, the fuel sensors, the main fuel sensors in your body, such as mTOR and AMPK. So those fuel sensors, they respond to 
not only uh, carbohydrates and sugar, but also uh, calories in general. So anything that it has like a significantly higher source of calories that can put you into a fit state by stimulating mTOR in a sense. And, uh, you know, whether or not you should add some fats into your coffee depends on your like goals and what you're trying to do with the fast. If you're fasting for just, you know, fat loss and you just want to fast throughout the day and suppress your appetite and the bulletproof coffee and the fats in the coffee, they help you to get through the fast, then, you know, I don't see any problems with it because it's, it's, it's in a line with your goals. But if you're fasting for, let's say, purely medicinal and therapeutic reasons by wanting to activate the autophagy process, then I would say that it's better to kind of be safe rather than sorry and uh, skip the, the fats in your coffee and just drink like regular coffee. Because, uh, yeah, like at, this, at, at the moment, the research about autophagy is still very uh, inconclusive and a lot, of, you know, a lot of things we still need to learn about. So uh, in theory, the fat doesn't really break a fast, but at the same time, it's also like, what's the purpose of the fast? And uh, yeah, like, why are you trying to do with it? Yeah, that, that makes total sense. And what about uh, another thing people will, will do? Um, will, they'll use like a, a collagen protein, something that doesn't have very many of these branched chain amino acids that like leucine and things that are going to cause a big increase in mTOR. What are your thoughts on that? Will you still kind of like the fats, depending on your goals, you'll still reap a lot of the same benefits by using something like a collagen? Yeah, I would say with the collagen, yeah, it's also like, what's the goal? Like if you're just fat, fat loss, goal, your goals are fat loss, then uh, the collagen wouldn't be like a huge issue in small amounts. And, uh, but at the same time, yeah, like uh, for uh, autophagy purposes, then it wouldn't be ideal. Like yeah, it is true that if you were to be eating only collagen protein with limited amount of PCAs, then uh, you would at least you would be able to tap into the autophagy process a lot quicker afterwards because one thing people kind of don't realize is as well that autophagy isn't like an on and off switch that if you just have accidentally five grams of, uh, let's say, protein, then you're going to have to fast for another 24 hours to get into the same state of autophagy as you were before. So it's, it's more of like a state of uh, degree dependency and it varies all the time between different tissues and happens almost all the time. So although let's say maybe five grams of collagen will inhibit autophagy for the next 30 minutes, you can probably get back into it faster uh, if you were to you know, wait an hour or such because you didn't overdo the calories because it's still like five grams is a very insignificant amount. Yeah, it's always interesting to me. People view these things as black and white, but typically it's a spectrum. You know, it's yeah. not just all or nothing. It's it's always, uh, you know, you're on a spectrum. So that that makes a lot of sense to me. And and back to something that you did mention earlier that I want to dive into a little bit more is uh, muscle loss associated with fasting and some of the mechanisms going on during a fast and whether or not you do or or don't uh, lose muscle. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> common sense would say that uh, if you're not eating and you're not feeding your muscles, then that will uh, you know, break down the muscle tissue in order to feed yourself. So that's, that has been the main narrative in bodybuilding circles for <laughs> quite a long time and supplement industries. But uh, the truth is that uh, whether or not you're going to actually lose muscle during a fast, that depends a lot, not only on the particular fasted period, but also like what you do afterwards. So of course, you can definitely lose muscle even if you're eating six times a day. 
because you're like consuming inadequate amounts of protein or you're just being too catabolic with your exercise and such. So, and likewise, you can gain muscle with uh, a limited time of uh, period of eating as long as you consume enough protein within that time frame and you're also stimulating the muscle pro- protein synthesis process with exercise and uh, eating. So it's a matter of what you're doing actually throughout the entire 24-hour period, not just during the fasting period. So usually maybe one of the reasons why people may lose muscle during the fasting period is uh, because they're, they're just uh, subconsciously eating less protein and uh, they're just you know, under-eating calories in general. So you can definitely avoid that by being more conscious about uh, the amounts of protein you eat and uh, making sure that the food is high quality. With that being said, um, there is some, uh, let's say, some situations where you're more prone to losing muscle during a fast and than others. Like if you're fasting and you're not in ketosis, then your body is uh, more prone to catabolize its muscle tissue as a way of producing glucose and uh, keeping, its, keeping its body running on uh, like carbohydrates. Versus if you were to be in ketosis, then it's literally like you're literally tapping into your own body fat and taking the ketones that you need from that source so you don't become catabolic because there's no read the body isn't uh, out of energy so there's a difference between fasting in and out of ketosis and uh, in mo- like all, almost always you would want to stay uh, in ketosis as long as possible when you're fasting because that's going to just first of all it's going to protect against muscle catabolism and second level, secondly it's also going to suppress it's, it's it's giving your brain energy which will suppress appetite it gives you mental clarity and just makes it makes the fast more uh, enjoyable and uh, euphoric almost yeah I, i've definitely found that to be the case is if you are metabolically flexible and you can't tap into body fat prior to embarking on a fast it's exponentially easier. I mean, you don't have those crazy hunger pains, your desires for food, and the fast just goes so much more smoothly. So on that topic, do you find that it is fairly important for people that want to embark on some fasting to, to start with a more high fat, low carbohydrate way of eating for a series of weeks? Uh, or is it safe for them to, let's say you're eating more of a standard American diet and they say, well, I still want to try out this intermittent fasting would it be still appropriate for those folks to just jump right into it? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I would say that any diet would benefit from some form of intermittent fasting and you don't necessarily have to be doing a keto keto diet to reap the benefits of fasting. And and, uh, likewise, on a keto diet, you should still want to do some form of fasting. Uh, But yeah, like you said, it's it's somewhat easier to um, get through the fasting periods if you're metabolically flexible and uh, somewhat keto adapted. Uh, but I would suggest that you, you um, let's say if you're doing a longer fast, then before that, it is very useful to have like a few days of eating low-carb keto as to prime your body to get into ketosis already before starting the fast. And uh, then it's going to minimize a lot of the downsides of longer fasts, uh, such as muscle loss and hunger cravings. And you, you will then again, like also speed up the fasting process in, in the same mechanism as, as you would with like things like coffee, because... Uh, you know, being in a low-carb ketogenic state, it's uh, allowing your body to tap into its uh, stored energy stores uh, faster. So you don't necessarily have to be fasting for that long to reap the benefits on a keto way of eating. Uh, but with that being said, again, like if I were to eat like a junk food standard American diet, then uh, I would still fast because it will at least mediate uh, some of the negative side effects of the junk food diet. And uh, you would be 
you would be, let's say, much healthier. You you you, you could still improve your health a lot a lot if you if you uh, were to fast on let's say even like a McDonald's type of diet. <laughs> Don't misconstrue that. No one should be eating. <laughs> A McDonald's or standard American diet. Now talk to me more about some of the gut benefits. We haven't really touched on that. And that's a big thing with people I work with who have digestive issues uh, where fasting can really come in handy to help to restore and heal some of the issues that they have with their digestive system. Yeah, for sure. Like, um, well, if you're fasting, then uh, you're literally just giving your digestion a little bit break and uh, that's where the body can start to uh, heal itself and um, there are some processes like autophagy and even um, even like the activation of stem cells that can literally just uh, help to repair uh, some of the intestinal lining of your gut as well as uh, improve the diversity of the microbiome so uh, it may be it may seem that if you're not eating and you're not feeding your gut bacteria, then they're literally going to starve and you're going to you know, wipe out the beneficial strands. Uh, whereas the truth is that they've shown that fasting actually improves the diversity. So uh, the, the microbiome, I would imagine the mechanism is just that the microbiome starts to, it's almost like a self-organizing entity in, in a sense or a space. So uh, when you're fasting, your, your body will kind of give the green light to um, conduct self-repair and uh, just the microbiome will then just adjust itself based upon what what's necessary and like uh, increases certain strands that are beneficial and wipes out the bad ones basically uh, but you know also like longer fasts they um, they can activate they they they, they can um, one of the researchers about fasting, Walter Longo, has shown that just fasting for seventy two hours it can completely reset the immune system. So that's very beneficial for like for fighting some autoimmune issues as well as just improving general um, metabolic health. So uh, yeah, there are, there are many ways that like, fasting can be useful for uh, improving gut health. But I think the main main um, main benefit just comes from uh, not eating all the time and not overbearing overbearing uh, your uh, digestive tract with uh, just food. Yeah, that is absolutely fascinating on the immune system aspect. I wasn't aware of that. That's a, a huge thing for people who have autoimmune disease or even immunocompromised to embark on a fast to try and reset their immune system. And as far as uh, Dr. Walter Longo, his research is fascinating with the fasting mimicking diet and how you can have uh, extreme caloric deficit for a series of days and still reap a large number of the benefits you would with a strict water fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he 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 has shown that the fasting mimicking diet, where you're eating like 500 to 700 calories a day, it uh, it can uh, you know reap some of the similar benefits like reduced mTOR and reduced IGF-1 and reduced insulin and so on. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure like what, how much like there is, there's definitely some form of autophagy happening there as well because you're eating so little calories and uh, like I said autophagy is still active in some shape or form even even if you're eating at a very low calorie intake. Um, but maybe like the caveat would be that on the fasting mimicking diet, then you're not really in ketosis all the time because uh, the foods that are prescribed there. They're somewhat higher in carbs, like some um, some uh, breads and uh, nut nut bars and uh, those sorts of things. They're they're definitely going to inhibit ketosis in some shape or form, and uh, that's just going to make the make it somewhat harder for the person to get through it. I would imagine, versus versus if they were, if they were to be doing, let's say, like a ketogenic fasting mimicking diet with uh, very low carbs and more of the healthy fats, 
then you could see similar health, you could see the same health benefits, but it would be also somewhat easier to adhere to because the ketosis aspect just makes the body more resilient against the fasting and, uh, and also makes it uh, more enjoyable for the person. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, one other question I had is in regards to people with low, currently low body fat percentage, like yourself, who want to reap all the benefits of fasting in terms of the gut healing and the autophagy and all of the downregulation of inflammation, but they don't have a lot of extra stored energy in the form of fat, uh, would then it be a little bit more dangerous to do a longer term fast or would they break down more muscle tissue because they're lacking any excess uh, amounts of body fat? Um, not, not, not in my own experience. Like, uh, like I, I haven't seen any, let's say downsides to these longer fasts, even though I don't have like a bunch of body fat to lose because the truth is that your body still has tens and thousands of calories with you, even if you are under 10% body fat. So you're, you're not going to starve. And uh, as you, let's say, as you implement this type of, uh, these types of fasts, even on a daily basis, then that's just going to improve your body's metabolic flexibility and uh, general fat adaptation. So you begin to, you begin to uh, use your own body fat very efficiently. And uh, that just makes it a lot, you know, you're, you're not going to notice a lot, any, like any difference during the fasting versus if you were to eating, <laughs> because you, you're basically almost running on your own body fat uh, all the time. And yeah, like uh, even for leaner people, they, uh, they can definitely fast for these longer, longer periods, as long as they uh, make sure that they eat uh, like adequate nutrition before and after the fast, in a sense that they, they don't stay in a calorie deprived state all the time and uh you know throw in some more fasting and high intensity exercise all all on top of each other yeah that's one thing where i think people need to be aware is that you want to couple your fasting with periods of, of feasting so that you don't get any yeah. down regulation in your metabolism so this uh, feast famine cycling is something i found to be very efficacious for people to reap all the benefits of fasting while still maintaining a high metabolic rate and and not running into any type of, you know, thyroid or adrenal issues. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to, yeah, like start losing muscle and downregulate the thyroid and slow down your metabolism because of just fasting all the time and never, never nourishing yourself. So yeah, it's very important to kind of uh, spike these anabolic growth hormones like mTOR and muscle protein synthesis when you break the fast, because that's where a lot of the magic actually happens. Like after you break the fast, so you're, uh, you're staying in the catabolic state, but in order to actually like facilitate it and uh, make sure that your body, you know, uh, gains those benefits, then you need to uh, feed and uh, nourish yourself. Yeah, that's that's a big thing for people to keep in mind. Is it's not just fasting all the time. You need you need some periods of feasting to signal your body that hey, we're not starving, so that you really get the the best sides of you know the best of both worlds, so to say. And what about in terms of women? I know oftentimes when it comes to longer fasts and you know stricter time restricted uh, eating windows, women can sometimes deal with uh, different energy problems and even. Uh, thyroid dysregulation. Have you found that to be the case with your research? Um, I do. I do like um, hear a lot of uh, women I speak to that um, they suffer from some of the negative side effects of fasting, like a lower thyroid or their uh, menstrual cycle gets gets off or something like that. And uh, I, I may I may think or I may agree with the fact that uh, women may um, 
maybe less resilient towards fasting in a sense that their physiology is less uh, robust uh, than it's not as robust as males because the males are supposed to be somewhat enduring against stressors versus the women are supposed to you know carry the offspring etc so it's more vulnerable for them to um, experience you know high levels of stress and their bodies more easily to shut off in in this in some sense uh, but i do uh, but at the same time i think that everyone can fast uh, as safe, safely as long as they um, you know implement some precautionary measures you know like if you are fasting for longer then you also have to make sure that you're not implementing or you're not adding a bunch of other stressors into your life, like sleep deprivation, working hard, and you know being stuck in traffic and screaming at other people and over-caffeinating, etc. So uh, I, I would mo- I would much rather think that part of the reason why uh, women may suffer negatively from fasting isn't necessarily because of the fasting, but it be- it's because of the other variables, like you know suffering maybe some from emotional stress, uh, some some turmoil, mental mental you know thoughts. Or uh, just you know a lot of more other responsibilities that males simply forget about, <laughs> or something like that. So yeah, I think physiologically everyone can fast. It's just that they just maybe have to adjust their approach a little bit. And you know, women can even just maybe maybe like break their fast a few hours sooner and fast a bit shorter if they feel that it's it's working better for them. Gotcha. And tell me a little bit more about, so I know you're big into self-experimentation and you, you, you know, you practice what you preach. What are some of the experiments you've personally done uh, with fasting? Uh, well, well, the longest I've fasted has been seven days, which is yeah, like a, like week with just uh, water and, you know, coffee and teas, which was like a very interesting experience in, in some aspects. Uh, so like the, what, maybe like the biggest thing that I noticed was that after let's say day two or three, then you kind of enter this sort of a different state of mind almost where you're very uh, like lucid almost like you're walking through through the day without really thinking about the same things as other people are. Like, of course, yeah, you may be thinking of like uh, what I should eat or I should want, I, I want to break my first. Uh, but what I've noticed is that you're really just very in tune with what goes on in your body. Like I feel very closer to like my blood flow and my heartbeat, etc. Like I, I could probably start to recognize like these like fluctuations in my blood sugar or something like that. If I were to like stand up too fast or if I were to like run up, run up, up and stones, up and down the stairs or something like that. So yeah, definitely like fasting maybe teaches you a lot about the, your physiology and even like the mental game, like you begin, begin to see that how big of a distraction food is in society. And like, you know, you're thinking of all these people around me, if only they knew that I was fasting <laughs> or something. It's very funny to see like people uh, running, uh, running uh, through the streets with eating some bagels and such just because they think they need to feed, or feed themselves. Whereas in reality, like you're fasting and you realize that your body can actually go for a lot longer without, without any food. So yeah, it's, very, it's, a, it's a very mystical experience almost that you're uh, very you're very somewhat like aware about your body and like somewhat semi-detached, but at the same time, you're very close to it and you're very close to your uh, physiology. So that's, that's one of the longer fasts that I uh, did. Uh, but I've also done some uh, experiments with like dry fasts where you're not drinking any liquids either. So in theory, you can 
go into like the therapeutic uh, zone of fasting uh, by depriving yourself from water as well because like dehydration it can uh, suppress mTOR and it can activate AMPK a lot more so it's it's a it's a somewhat of a slippery slope because there isn't any actual research about it is most of it is just like stories and anecdotal anecdotal results but I do think that there may be something there but it's definitely not something that you should do all the time so I may every once in a while like for instance when I'm traveling and I'm, I don't I don't have access to like clean drinking water then I'll go like oh yeah I'm getting a good dry fasting right now <laughs> and it's not it's not going to like interfere me it's not going to uh and uh, make me feel distraught that I'm not drinking or I'm not staying hydrated because yeah, like, that's another maybe topic that people think they need to drink a lot of water all the time. Uh, whereas in reality, they're just flushing out their electrolytes by, you know, going to the bathroom, bathroom too often. Yeah. It's, it's so important to be adding back in essential minerals, trace minerals, electrolytes to your water to really attain you know, optimal hydration levels because water in itself is only part of the equation. We need all of those different cofactors and, and minerals along with it to really hydrate our cells. And I find it so interesting with the, the notion that so many people have that if they skip a meal, they're just going to like starve to death and they start freaking out and like they have to eat, you know, so many times every day. And that's where fasting could really become so empowering is that you, you realize that when I don't eat, I feel fine. My body goes into a great state. I actually experience profound mental clarity during a fast where I'm extremely focused. Like you said, you don't have all these distractions of having to buy food or cook and clean and you become extraordinarily productive. That's one of my favorite uh, things about a fast is I get so much done and I feel really, really on point from a cognition standpoint. So that that's something that people need to be more aware of is that, yeah, you know, during a fast, you're your body's going to be just fine. It's all in your head. And mindset is a huge component because after embarking on a, on a prolonged fast, you really do build some mental resilience and to, you know, improve your willpower and improve your, your confidence in yourself to stick to something. So that's, you know, just another kind of emotional psychological benefit of fasting. Yeah. And it does, you know, teach you discipline as well and uh, willpower in a sense that you're uh, more, more diligent with with what you eat and when you eat so you're not just, you're not really like triggered into random acts of eating and uh, snacking and such so you can these kind of strict strict rules of okay i'm gonna eat my food within that time frame that first of all it does improve your like your your decision making abilities and prevents willpower fatigue but at the same time it also like teaches you discipline in the sense of yeah, I said I'm going to do it and uh, I'm not going to be, you know, uh, I'm not going to get caught up with a random uh, hunger craving on a street when I see someone eating a bagel or, or something. Yeah, yeah. And what are some of the potential dangers with fasting? You know, what, what do people need to watch out for? And are there any groups of the population that fasting like this would not be appropriate for? Um, I think that... Uh, you know, uh, with, let's say, someone who has, let's say, type 1 diabetes, then they may be somewhat more cautious with uh, how long they fast and how does it affect them. So uh, although I would think that fasting is very beneficial for, for uh, treating uh, diabetes, uh, type 2 diabetics can fast very easily because, you know, the body will be able to heal itself quite fast. But with type 1 diabetes, 
and they may become dehydrated and they have to probably make sure that they get their like electrolytes on point and they can still fast uh, just fine. They may just have to be more um, cautious with like, you know, doing it with maybe like some medical supervision. Uh, but uh, other people, I would say that uh, a lot of people, yeah, like they would, they would be able to just fast just fine uh, as long as they maybe become keto adapted to a certain extent and they're not maybe like jumping straight into a, like longer fasts because um, part of the or m- most of the negative side effects tend to happen only in people who are not really used to it and uh, they're just, their body is incapable of, uh, you know, running on its own body fat. So as you, as you adapt and you get more used to it, then the all the kind of negative side effects such as hypoglycemia and hunger and and those sorts of things they they will tend to uh, go away but for for let's say some some cohorts of people who wouldn't maybe want to fast for that long or like maybe pregnant women uh, or uh, or like very elderly people who are suffering already from reduced muscle tone and uh, weakness so um, although they would i would say that they couldn't maybe fast for long periods of time for maybe like 24 hours or something, they can still do some form of timer skating. They can still do the 16 and 8 method as long as they uh, consume adequate amounts of uh, nutrition within the time frame. That makes sense. And in terms of eating one meal a day, so you're essentially doing a a 23-ish hour fast on a daily basis ongoing. I know you've experimented with that as well. What were your findings uh, with that kind of protocol? Uh, well, yeah, I've been I've been doing uh, one meal a day basically for uh, three years or something. Uh, not all the time, but like I would say ninety ninety percent of the time, I've done one meal a day, and I've eaten within yeah like twenty two to twenty three hours of fasting and two hours of eating. Uh, what I've noticed is that uh, initially it it is like somewhat more difficult to uh, get used to it, but after a while, again, like as your fat adaptation increases then there's no real difference. And I feel amazing during the fasting period. And my, my, my performance hasn't suffered at all either. I've still gotten stronger with like some nuances in the sense that I still uh, have to uh, eat sufficient amounts of protein. And sometimes I even have like maybe, that's, that's maybe like the only time where I would implement some form of like a BCA drink or a protein shake during the workout because that's where your body would actually need it and you're trying to build muscle so having some form of uh some some form of protein in your bloodstream uh, during the workout while you're fasting and you're doing like one meal a day then that would be the only kind of time where you would benefit from it but yeah in general like the, the one meal a day is very very convenient for me and uh, i've noticed very uh, like great results in both in terms of like uh, staying lean uh, improving like productivity as well as yeah, like uh, being able to still able to build muscle with it because the body adapts to it, and uh, after it adapts to it, then uh, yeah, it's there's no no real difference what I've noticed. Interesting, yeah. I, I I'll usually do something like that once a week where I'll just have one meal on like let's say a Sunday, so I get a 24 hour fast between my dinner on Saturday and my dinner on Sunday. But I I found for myself at least that doesn't work very well long term. And I do see a couple potential problems. Maybe you could uh, highlight how you mitigate these, but one of, one of which being, you know, water soluble nutrients only stay in our system for roughly, you know, half the day. So I like to eat two meals and have them somewhat spread out so that especially when I'm taking different nutritional supplements, I'm able to have adequate levels of various vitamins 
throughout my bloodstream for the entire 24-hour period. Mm-hmm. And the other one being that uh, not very many, I don't know of any actually, um, ancestral populations that did one meal a day ongoing. It was typically here and there, but not as a, a prolonged strategy. Yeah, yeah. Those are re- really good points. And uh, I would have to say that uh, the one meal a day, it can be it can be a blessing and it can be a curse <laughs> in a sense. I, th- I do think that it's not like uh, necessary and it's not better than uh, two meals a day. So uh, like uh, I would maybe like agree for if you were to try to optimize both uh, muscle protein synthesis as well as nutrient absorption, then you would want to spread it out uh, at least like a few hours, maybe like six hours, six or eight hours, you know, like, the, like the bare minimum. Uh, but uh, when it comes to nutrient absorption, then uh, you're not going to become like nutrient efficient as long as the um, the uh, quality of nutrients within your time within your eating window is still high like uh, when i break a fast then i'm not eating like bok choy and kale <laughs> or maybe sometimes i will but most of the time i'm still eating like the most nutrient dense uh, foods on the planet in my opinion like uh, some liver some egg yolks uh, you know salmon then you know fish roe, those sorts of things. That those are the most nutrient dense uh, uh, foods, and they do cover like most of the essential uh, nutrients that your body needs. So I haven't. I've taken like some blood tests, and I haven't become deficient in uh, any any of the nutrients. And yeah, like uh, they're really spot on. And I do think that some some periods of uh, let's say nutrient deficiencies can be somewhat useful just because of the body will try to prioritize them a lot more and it becomes more sensitive towards the absorption. So imagine if you are taking, uh, like, um, all, all of the, uh, you know, all of the, uh, nutrients and uh, supplements you need, uh, that your body would need all the time, then your body be- develops a tolerance to it the same way it does to caffeine in a sense. So uh, with OMAD or like, let's say with just fasting in general, the, I would, I would uh, hypothesize that uh, the amount of nutrients that your body needs would be somewhat lower just because it becomes more efficient with its usage. So uh, there are some people who would maybe agree with me in this sense as well, that uh, you don't need like a bunch of uh, nutrients all the time to uh, function at your best. And uh, with fasting, you do you will you will maybe become more efficient with the usage of those nutrients. Uh, what was the uh, second question that you asked? Oh, I know you you covered it in terms of the nutrients, and then just kind of the other part of my my thinking was ancestral populations that oh, right. uh, rarely partook in the one meal a day for you know years on end. It was typically kind of a yeah. sporadic uh, thing, not always yeah, you're, by choice. Yeah, yeah, you're you're completely right in a sense that I think. Uh, hunter gatherers in the past they would probably eat somewhat they would eat very chaotically and randomly like they didn't have the first of all they didn't have breakfast lunch and dinner but they didn't have like specific time frames for eating like like people do with intermittent fasting nowadays either so uh, they probably ate like one day they ate a little bit of breakfast then they fasted throughout the entire day and ate a little bit at dinner and then they ate maybe like only at lunch the next day then they fasted for two days then they again ate only dinner, etc. So it's very random and chaotic, and it's definitely not. I think the the purpose of fasting isn't to kind of mimic this sort of uh, way of eating as hunter gatherers, because they were in this environment where they just needed to eat as much as they could all the time. Uh, but you know, in the modern world, fasting and intermittent fasting is just 
just a way of mimicking some aspects of the ancestral way of eating, such as you know staying in a faster state for longer and uh, making sure that you're just not uh, snacking and you, you're not like predisposing yourself to the temptations of uh, modern food industry. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. And so just to kind of wrap things up, uh, you've written multiple books on these topics and that are, are absolutely excellent. People could find on Amazon. I mentioned one metabolic autophagy and you've written other books on the ketogenic diet. And how'd you kind of come up with, with these books? Was it just based on your own personal experience and the benefits you saw that kind of motivated you to, to write and research more about them? Uh, well, yeah, part, part of the reason I wrote the books was, um, my personal stories, but uh, when I did kind of start uh, writing those, uh, let's say, conceptions of the books, then at that time, those topics were also very uncovered by other people. So, for, for example, one of my books, Keto Bodybuilding, uh, the term Keto Bodybuilding was very, you know, very controversial and people thought it was impossible to build muscle on a keto diet a few years ago. So uh, I just kind of grabbed the bull by its horns and uh, <laughs> wanted to kind of refute a lot of the myths about this topic and kind of grab is almost like a land grab <laughs> in a sense that there is actually, it's, it's actually possible. Here's how you do it. And uh, here's the science, etc. So people can, when other people would become interested in this topic as the years come along, then they would have like my book to reference to. So that's one of the reasons I wrote the book in the first place because there weren't no other books about this particular topic. And the same applies to uh, metabolic autophagy as well. To a certain extent, you know, autophagy is very popular at the moment, and you know, uh, it won a Nobel Prize in 2016. So uh, there's a lot of you know myths about it. There's a lot of misconceptions about it, and a lot of like uh, even science itself doesn't really understand you know, how it works and uh, etc. So I've just wanted to put together this book as a way of uh, collecting all the, the science about it. And uh, how can you mo most importantly, how can you combine it with this, this way of living with intermittent fasting and uh, kind of practicing it. So it's not just a science book, it's more of like a practitioner's guide to uh, fasting in general. Awesome, awesome. And well, where could people learn more about you and your work and, you know, could you tell them about your website, social handles, things like that? Yeah, well, uh, my website is uh, seamlund.com. There you can find some, a lot of articles and uh, links to all this thing that we talked about. And on other social media platforms like YouTube and Instagram, I'm also seamlund. So uh, you can find me there. And I highly recommend people check out Sim's YouTube channel. He's got a ton of great video content up there and good articles on his website as well. I was reading through prior to this interview and I really appreciate your time today, Sim, and sharing all this information about fasting. Well, yeah, it was great talking with you and uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening in. You can find the show notes and resources at thrivingwellness.co slash podcast. We encourage you to share your biggest takeaways with us on social media and share the show with your friends and family. If you found this episode valuable, leave us a five-star review. Your feedback helps to support us on our mission to positively impact as many people as we can with this information. Join us for our next episodes where we will be interviewing leading wellness professionals to inspire you in your health journey. Until next time.